Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. There's been a really interesting introduction to the world of podcasting, and I would say something that has been sorely needed And we are going to have the opportunity to discuss with Garth Mullins, who is the executive producer and host of Crackdown Podcast, which is a podcast covering the drug war, covering the opioid epidemic. And it's one where the work is being done by drug users, people who have substance abuse disorder, and they are the ones who are tackling this issue. This podcast is unbelievable. I feel very, very fortunate to be speaking with with Garth today. And this is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be really challenging. Actually, fun might not be the right term for it, but it's it's going to be something. This is going to be an important one. Before we get into the content, I just want to ask everyone, please go check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. The whole archive of the show is there. We crossed the 100-episode mark recently. Tons of good content. It's all evergreen. If you're interested in content around the opioid epidemic, there's incredible content as well. And we'll link to that in this episode too. So people who have an interest and want to learn more, all of those interviews are available, then you can find them. You can find me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter at ETS show. You can email me anytime, Mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Please take the opportunity to subscribe to Explore the Space. We've got lots and lots of episodes coming. We try to do about two per week. So you can subscribe on your favorite platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you like to download your shows. I love to interact with fans. I love interacting with people who are enjoying the show. And when you're able to subscribe and and leave us a rating and a review, that really helps new people find the work that we're doing here. The work that we're doing here is important. And this episode is going to prove to be one of those important ones. Garth Mullins is the founder, the host, and the executive producer of Crackdown Podcast. And as we were getting ready for this episode, reminded me that he took his methadone this morning. He has walked the the longest and the hardest road. He is making that road public, transparent, and, and stark for all of us with the Crackdown Podcast. I am so excited to have this conversation and to learn from Garth. Garth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Mark. Your road that you have walked the path that you've been on, the the things that have happened to you, the things that you've been through w- with your journey through life as someone with opioid use disorder, when did it start? Where was it? Was there a place where you look back and say, that was the pivot point, that was the branch in the road, and this was where my life took a turn and brought me to the place that I am now? Oh, I, I mean, perhaps the first time I did heroin, you know, I was uh, 18 or 19 and, uh, you, you know, you've tried other substances before, certainly you got drunk and I, you know, I've been drinking and everything for years before that, but, uh, uh, you do heroin or I did. And suddenly that, uh, howling kind of alienation that had become the wallpaper of your life is gone. You know, the, the self-hate, the, the, the feeling of being at war with who you are and, uh, removed from everything else, the kind of what I later discovered to be trauma all of that stuff was just switched off. And as soon as I, as soon as I took that, I was just like, ah, I'm home. This is right. This is normal. This must be what everybody else, what all the, the upstanding citizens that are all around me, this must be what they're feeling like. When you went down that road for the first time and you had that feeling of, okay, this is what normal feels like. 
Did you have a sense that what life was like at the time wasn't normal and that you needed that? Or was there something else that drew you to say, this is something I'm going to try and, and see how it makes me feel? Yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't really remember. Uh, yeah. I mean, I remember that whatever was happening to me, I just, I, I didn't really have a good baseline on what normal was. Yeah. I just knew I didn't really like it. So it's to the extent I can put a little narrative on it and explain it like that. That's, that's looking backwards, you know, sure, sure. You, you just, at the time you just feel this kind of sense of, of relief or, or like momentary peace or something like that. You know, do you think that for people who are addicted to opiates, become addicted to opiates and use opiates, do you think that that branch point is the same? Yeah, obviously, you 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 are a part of a community of people who are like you, very open and transparent and thoughtful about this, and and also are very willing to share so that others can learn and so that we can hopefully start to move the needle in a different direction. Is the is it similar? Is that the same work? And the reason that I ask that is, if we're looking for a source point, if we're looking for a place to channel effort and energy, is that a place to look? That that moment of saying, I want to try this because I have feelings and I need them to be gone. I need that switch to be flipped. Like you said. Yeah. I'd go upstream from that. You know, um, the sort of, uh, the, the criminal model suggests we are all moral failures that need to be locked up. The disease model suggests that we're all sick that need to be cured, uh, you know, by, by force if necessary, by court order if necessary, but I actually look more to sociology. I think that the way that our society is organized is generating um, people with substance use disorder. It's like a machine that sort of poops us out in, in thousands and tens of thousands. We, we've created a society that is so alienating, that is so uh, hateful, displacing, and ruinous of community, family, and connection that, that basically the precursors are put out every day for people to be going and trying to solve the way I did. So, I mean, the, the place to look, if you want to look upstream, is not the first time that I tried heroin or that somebody else tries an opiate. It's, it's those ingredients that are baked into our lives, sometimes from the very beginning, uh, that, that aim us in that direction. When you – let me step back. From that first time that you tried heroin and you had that feeling, what, what sounds like almost a euphoria, like, wow, this is the way life is supposed to feel. This is what everyone else – that's, you know, doing their thing. This is how they must feel. How long were you on that road? How long were you on the road of someone who was actively engaged in using heroin and then decided, okay, I've walked this for a while. This is not the way, and I need to do something different. How long was that stretch of time for you? I don't know, 10 or 15 years really. Wow. Uh, but somewhere in the middle, you're, you're, you're not, I mean, maybe even earlier. And that you're just trying to outrun dope sickness. That's all you're doing. You're just on a terrible treadmill and it's a full-time job just trying to get ahead of dope sickness. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I tried, I tried to get on methadone and fits and starts kind of from several years before I ever successfully got onto a program. And then I was still using it at the same time as being on methadone. And eventually it, it sort of settled down for me. And, and now that's all I do is, is methadone. But, you know, methadone is like a nicotine patch. Basically it's, it's replacing something that's harmful with something that's less harmful. And, and the reason heroin is harmful was harmful to me. It's not something about the molecule. It's about the law. So it's illegal. It's illegal now. It didn't used to be hundred years ago. And, um, it means that there's all kinds of stuff in there, like fentanyl, um, 
mixed it in a way that could be so strong it could kill you. Or we find like rat poison and pig dewormer and uh, brick dust and household detergents and stuff in there. So that that was the real harmful part for me. Um, but but yeah, it, it, I was on there for uh, for a long time, and uh, I, I sort of have learned lots of lessons about how we ought to be making it easier for people uh, in many regards. That's one of the things that you talked about on the podcast that I thought was very, very striking as what you mentioned now as well is this idea of you can live your life and your brain can function and you can participate in society and feel productive and feel like a human being without that worry of, and you, you identify two very specific things, that worry about being arrested and that worry of overdosing and dying or not even overdosing, but dying because of some poison or toxin that's been, that, that your drug of choice has been cut with. It's just, it's such a surreal life to have to lead. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, in, in jail, dead or dope sick, you know, those are the three sort of things that stalk you yeah. uh, through that experience. And those are all basically uh, policy outcomes or the results of policy decisions and laws yeah. rather than some kind of natural phenomenon or something that's um, biophysical or chemical. So from that point, from that concept of, and you identified, right, things further upstream, the way that society affects people of any age that makes opioids and then subsequent opioid use disorder the path, and then policy creation, policy making. What it feels like you're doing with Crackdown is trying to, in a very stark way and in a, albeit small way, a very, I would imagine, a very impactful way to, to push back and to really leverage the power of story, which we know on this show and we know <laughs> through human history is, is a very powerful tool to try to change that. So let's, start, let's talk a little bit about the origins of Crackdown and you deciding to take your story and use it in a manner to say, I'm not just going to share, I'm going to share from a perspective of advocacy and from a perspective of pushing for change. Well, I, I've been working for uh, a bunch of years with a group of drug users who are also activists. And we sort of organized ourselves into a union about 20 years ago in Vancouver uh, called the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And uh, this group has fought for and won safe injection sites Precursors to this group fought for and won clean needle distribution. Uh, I mean, we're fighting for right now uh, access to clean heroin so that people don't have to do the heroin that could potentially kill them uh, or, or contaminated oxys or whatever. I mean, that's where it came from for me as my experience as a drug user, but also as an activist. And, and Crackdown is really led by an editorial board of, of other folks with um, direct experience of being active drug users of being in the crisis. And I mean, this is why in part, why just two weeks ago we lost one of our editorial board members. I mean, we're on episode two and, and we're, we, you know, she died and uh, it, it kind of broke us all up and, and we're kind of trying to regroup around that, but it's that experience of having your close friends drop and be kind of taken out through your life like this. Um, and I realized also that out in the world, the media representations of us were so different from what I experienced, you know. Uh, this is a really smart group of people. 
Like this is the people who know the policy and the law better than the people from government that we meet with sometimes. Like sometimes we have to explain the details of their own policies to them because they haven't lived them. They haven't had to comb through and understand the minutia like we have. They haven't been through the court system. They haven't had lawyers explain to them exactly how it works. So we we come from this place of deep experience and also deep expertise. But if you just sort of pick up a you know, regular newspaper or something like that. You'll kind of see drug users described as zombies and um, all kinds of really stigmatizing things. And it just, it, the representation is su- such a disconnect for me that I want people to see us how I see us. I, I like what you're doing with the show. It's hard to listen to. I love it. I, you know, it's one of those things where you have to step into the tension and, and really commit. It is easier to, address it the way I, as you described, you know, the, the, the popular media will address it, the zombie, the, you know, look at this person on the ground who overdosed. But the reality is with the numbers, the many, 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 many tens of thousands of people who have opioid use disorder in the United States and in Canada, where you live now, right? They they are, they're part of society. This, this is a, this is an epidemic and that's not a term to be used loosely. Epidemic means, right? A certain percentage of your population is affected. It's important that we don't use those dismissive terms and that we try to leverage lessons from history. And, you know, for me, the, the, the place where I'm able to make a comparison is the journey that we all went through. Well, I was very young, but I've learned a lot about it in the, in the meantime was the AIDS epidemic. And when that started in the early eighties and the language that was used and the way populations and people were marginalized and the way those same populations talked about learning how to get very, very comfortable with loss and get very, very comfortable with their friends dying uh, and that becoming part of life. And as awful as it was, that's just the way that it was. You know, the, the, do those parallels make sense? Is that idea of activism to move the needle are do you do you see it in that same way absolutely i mean we have we have reached out to and and learned from some of the people who were involved in act up you know yeah. involved in fighting back against the the hiv epidemic back in the day um and we were trying to learn not only what tactics worked for them but uh, how they survived basically losing their their friends and comrades, the, the, the leadership of the movement, uh, what the dynamics were. How do you how do you organize a movement that's, that wants to change the world, wants to radically change how the world is organized? But at the same time, we we can't catch a breath. We're so in, in crisis response mode every day that it's hard to think strategically looking ahead how do we get to that world when when people are dropping all around us so for sure we we learned a lot from that tradition because i mean we are a social movement organizing just like any other kind of human rights movement organizes and we also have to learn from solidarity that that our struggles are connected in many ways with many struggles and that anything that's good in our society gets one uh, through struggle, like our, like I was saying, our safe injection site and and clean needle distribution, but also things like uh, pay equity and the weekend. These are things that got won through the labor um, and union organizing, the labor movement. But I think that the last parallel is now so stark. It's how um, drug users are kind of thought of as uh, unclean people and you get cops putting on biohazard suits or hazmat suits to go near us or to, 
you know, because they're they're incorrectly worried about skin contact with one uh, molecule of fentanyl. You know, um, my my podcast team, we were we were recording a part of an episode in in a safe injection room um, yesterday, and nobody was nobody was thinking that people were openly using and, and getting their gear ready uh, in that room. And we weren't thinking, Oh my God, we could all die because we could inhale one particle of this. It's just, it's not like that. And there's no cases of that. So this, this sort of uh, law enforcement hysteria about um, having to use hazmat suit really parallels how back in the eighties AIDS patients were, were handled by the people in authority wearing hazmat suits in the same way. And it just, it, it creates this, this lightning bolt of fear through society, uh, you know, and, and uh, that, that is very stigmatizing. I think that's a very apt descriptive term, that lightning bolt of fear. And I think that one of the really impactful things that Crackdown has done and that you've done and I think will continue to do, maybe in some ways before the activism can start, is to lay those issues out and make them clear that this is what is happening and it, it, it's too easy to, to cast the, the broad net that does not capture everyone that has opioid use disorder because look how many there are and we, we have to just recognize that this also has to be different. Uh, and I think that that approach is a really, really intelligent one. And I think that it's, you know, I was a history major. And I like to talk about that a lot on this podcast. There's lessons to be drawn from our shared history. And I think that that's a really good way to do it. And I think that that crackdown – is is impactful when you're doing the show are you because you've episode two is out as you map it out are you mapping it out with a goal in mind or is the goal right now hey let's just start telling some stories or is there like hey we are moving towards something and we're going to use this as a stepping stone well i guess our we we have a sort of an episode by episode process so we, we start at the beginning of the episode and we kind of have some ideas about it. We are going to learn some things along the way. And, um, you know, I did the, the most recent episode too is about methadone and uh, sort of a big pharmaceutical takeover of the methadone markets in Canada and a lot of North America and how that affected us with a, a product that didn't work as well for a lot of us. So we all started, we were all forced to take this new methadone. And it wasn't lasting a full day. It was lasting, you know, half a day. And so people are dope sick. And then people are using uh, heroin again to top up. And it's that it's the one job of methadone is to make sure you're not sick. That's the only thing it's supposed to do. So it's failing at that. And then there's an overdose crisis looming as this change happens. And so thousands of people got shoved into dope sickness and then thus put in the crosshairs of the crisis. And I believe we've lost a lot of people to that. So we're still trying to unpack what happened, why the government made the decisions, how come they wouldn't listen to us. And so that investigation is ongoing and, and we're still on the trail of that. So we do, uh, you know, what freedom of information requests they're called here. Uh, it's, it's like you're trying to get, get uh, documents from government um, that they're supposed to share with people. And, and journalists in the United States do that all the time. They have an easier job of it actually in, in the U.S. than we do in Canada. But, uh, you know, we're trying to take apart those decisions and understand what's going on. So we're still on the case of that. So some stuff is kind of investigative. Some stuff we, we want to come out with those demands at the end, like we do at episode two, and really push them back on government and trying to make something happen. 
Sometimes we want to just tell a story. Sometimes we want to raise up part of our community on whom the the crisis hits us harder. Like if you're an indigenous person, uh, I guess it's a Native American, um, the, the, the history of colonization means that the crisis impacts you differently. And, you know, the same if you're a person of color or if you're a woman. Um, and we want to tell those stories about how these kind of social inequalities amplify the crisis. And so sometimes there's no investigation needed there. It's just this is how it happens. This is the, this is the truth. And so we want to tell uh, our truth about that. And so in some cases, uh, that's the goal of the episode. The podcast as a whole, we want to take what we've learned through through science and show how it backs up what we live on the in, in the trenches in the day to day, and take those two things together and form a fist out of them and really punch up. That's what we want to do with it. We want to aim our fist upward to the people who are making decisions in our society and punch up. And if we get more listeners and more people support us, that makes a stronger, faster fist, you know? That description, I, I'm smiling. I, I understand your logo now because your logo is a clenched <laughs> yeah. fist. It's, it's surrounded by chains. It's holding a syringe and it's punching up. So I appreciate that explanation. I've, I love the logo. It's a really impactful logo, but now I understand the logo. And I really appreciate that. Those the, two- the, the, the history of that logo is uh, I made a poster in 1998 for decriminalizing heroin because in the, in the middle of the 90s in Vancouver, there was an overdose crisis. So this is actually the second one I'm living through personally. And lots and lots of my friends didn't live through the first one and aren't living through this one. And so I, I drew this poster with this fist with the chain and, and holding the syringe with the same intention. But it's just for me, it's it's like part of it is the echo of the long struggle, the generation long struggle that we've had on some of these things. That's that's very, very interesting. And I wonder if the uh, whether you do this intentionally or not hearing you talk about that longitudinal path and how long it's been, the the black and white nature is sort of reflective of something from an era that is decolorized that we didn't have yet. And I, I actually really like it. I think that there's a lot of really interesting subtext in that logo. And I, I, I really appreciate you explaining it to me like that as you've been doing that work. And as you've been pushing on those two parallel paths and for those who have not listened to crackdown, you need to listen to crackdown. Uh, for those of you who have the opportunities to educate people around opioid use disorder, you need to share crackdown. It is, there's nothing like it. It's extraordinary. And it's getting that we're two episodes in and you finish an episode and you're just rocked. Well, uh, thank, thanks very much, Mark. I, I really like, humbled by your your words and uh i just i it makes me think there's there's one thing we do with the show uh that lots of people like one in five people in canada don't have access to a good broadband internet oh wow yeah and so that means lots of people who are like some of us who make the show don't have computers don't have phones don't have ability to have a podcast like one of the first points of discussion anytime we talk with our community about this is what is a podcast and I basically say, it's, you know, it's like radio coming out of the computer. Yeah. And um, I, I believe that you use the same sort of radio making skills and storytelling skills. Absolutely. But so we we uh, play it live uh, for people whenever they want. So we'll have, uh, you know, 30, 35 people gather together and we'll just play it and we'll talk about the issue and also what people didn't like about the episode and we get feedback. And so one of the earlier pieces of feedback to me was. Well, make it funnier. 
you know, and I, and you might strike your listeners. How can we make it funny? But it's like, we don't have to write a funny script Yeah. because drug user conversation is hilarious. Like we are full of gallows humor and banter and everything. All I have to do is not be so ruthless editing the tape and let some of that bullshit get on there. And so you'll start to probably hear more and more of that kind of creeping in as we go. I would actually like the real color. I would love that because that's the sort of look, that's the humanizing part, right? That's, that's, we're all people, right? We all have our, our struggles. We all have our, our issues that we, that are hard for us, for you and for people that you work with now, it's opioid use disorder. And it's no different than someone who might struggle with depression or somebody who is diagnosed with cancer or somebody who gets in a car accident and has to rehabilitate. It is an obstacle in life that you have to struggle through and the barriers are different, but the response is different. And we have that shared experience and the shared experience is always great. It's always rich. It's always funny. It's always dark. And I think that getting, giving people that look behind the scenes, like check out these really smart, intelligent people who on the daily battle opioid use disorder, but check out how funny they are. Check out how sweet they are to one another. Check out how much they care about, not just themselves, but the people around them so that they don't die. I think that that's a really intelligent and a really interesting approach. And I, I think it's fa- I think it's fantastic. Well, thanks. We're, we're releasing an episode at the end of every month. And this month we're working on sort of where do safe injection sites come from? What's yeah. the trajectory of that? How can you get one in your own town? We're going to give people advice on how to do that. Uh, but we sit down at the beginning with this guy, Boomer, who's a friend of mine, and he works the desk at um, a safe injection room in Vancouver. And he's just like your natural like radio host comedian. And he says to me before we turn on the mic, he says, oh, he's really nervous about this. And I kind of can't believe it because this guy's always like with the one liners and stuff like that. And sure enough, we turn on the mic and he just starts to be in his natural self. And it's just it's like that that what he's doing is he's he's checking people into this room to use to use drugs that could kill them. And they're monitoring to make sure that they don't. And they have Narcan or naloxone. So they have naloxone and oxygen. On standby. It's they're right ready there. to. They're ready to revive people. Wow. And so he's checking them in, and he, he checks to make sure. What are you using? Is it? Is it? Is it coke? Is it heroin? What is it? And um, you know, he's checking in, and then the, the people are being monitored. But he has time to bullshit with us while this is happening. You know, and it's it's like uh, it's like my friend Hawkfeather says. Um, if, if your neck is in the news, you have the right to all the gallows humor you want. <laughs> and uh, I think I think they're absolutely right. About yeah. That, you know, so when we have these listening parties, when we play the episode to people, um, we definitely want them to be political. We want to think about what are the demands? How do we move this forward? What's the next step in the activism? But we also love the feedback, yeah. you know, and people saying, make it funnier. And yeah. That. You what know, is the and feedback, we, though, we, right? We so you have people with... saying, make it funny. You have people saying, make it funny. You have feedback. And I also don't want you and I to fall into this sort of romantic trap. You know, we're both podcast hosts, and I have my own view of opioid use disorder because I treat people with it in the hospital every single day. And, you know, my call and credo is to try to help and is to try to help break cycles and to try to prevent dope sickness in the hospital so we can treat pneumonia and to try to help people find a different path in their life if they feel like they're ready. Hang um, on a sec, Mark. Yep. Like, let's let's underline that point. Help prevent dope sickness. Right. Like, if every doctor could hear those words and, like, write this down, because yep. right now in an opiate crisis, dope sickness equals death. Huh. So if you're sending someone back out into the street, if you're saying, oh, it's drug-seeking behavior, or, oh, I'm not worried about this, or, oh, 
you, no, dope sickness doesn't kill anyone. You, you'll be fine. You're doing it wrong. You're sending someone into machine gun fire. So it's just like, I, I really love that you said that because it is so crucial. So let's, let's build on that then. Let's talk about dope sickness because episode two helped me to understand, I think a little bit better what dope sickness looks like. And I will be honest, one of the challenges in the hospital setting, dope sickness is a, is a mimicker. It, it mimics lots of other syndromes. And to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when people, I see them in the hospital and they tell me, doc, I feel dope sick. And I'll sort of ask them what's going on. And I, you know, look, I've read the textbooks and I've, I've seen this enough, but I like to ask not because I'm trying to be gruesome because I'm trying to learn the best understanding that I've gotten that equates it with something else that people can understand is it is like having a really, really bad viral gastroenteritis where you're sweating you're, you can't get comfortable. Everything hurts. You're vomiting. You have diarrhea. You can't concentrate. And all you want is for it to stop. Is that, yeah. is that, is that the right equation? It's, it's a big component of it. And then add to that, um, the psychological part. So the part that's in your brain. And I don't, I don't really think there's a big wall between the physical and the psychological part. Yeah, but yeah. imagine the, the worst night of your life where you're, you're panicking about something. It's the middle of the night. You can't sleep. You can't even sit still. Like you just, you're turning and turning and turning. You're getting up, you're getting down. Are you hungry? Are you not? Like your mind won't let you alone. Like you're just being tormented by maybe, maybe you have to do something the next day that you're terrified of, like flying a plane or sit an exam. I, I don't know what it is, but it's just like, you cannot get free. So you're, you're being tormented um, physically and mentally and at the same time, all the things that you used drugs for to, to put away, like maybe you're using it to, to keep trauma at bay, to keep the terrible things that happened to you as a kid, to keep that out of your mind, um, and to keep the, the self-hate that's built up out of your mind, to keep the abandonment that you've maybe felt after whatever happened as a kid out of your mind. Like maybe, maybe you felt that abandonment and you carried that with you through the rest of your life that no one will stick with me. Everybody hates me, including myself. And I'm not worthy. You have that. It's built up like a giant uh, force that weighs down on you, like an incredible gravity of Jupiter kind of thing. And you found a way to keep that at bay. And now that's all crashing back down on you too. And you're shooting stuff out of your ass and mouth at the same time. So yeah, it's really, it's really bad. <laughs> God, man, it's just that, that feels like in a way though, the lowest hanging fruit, right? Because we can fix that. As you said to me, this, you know, before we started recording, you took your methadone this morning. We have tools, we have, you know, subutex, we have, um, buprenorphine, we have methadone, we have tools. We are so far behind in delivery, in understanding, in execution, in destigmatizing, is is that low hanging fruit that you're going to try to go after? Oh sure. I mean, I think the world should be flooded with with uh, proper top shelf methadone and all the OAT stuff and and the there's injectable OAT stuff too. Yeah. You know, uh, that's opiate agonist treatment. That's all the the various kinds of nicotine patches that you can get that, right, that right. help this sort of thing. And, and I think the the patient is going to be in a really good position to figure out what the right one is for them. Everyone's habit is a little bit different. Methadone works for some people. It doesn't work for some other people. Suboxone works for some people, I guess. And um, it's it's like the quickest line between 
Um, the person who walks in and sees you as a medical professional and the ending of that dope sickness is what you want to do. That's, I mean, that's how you win the trust of the patient. That's how you actually take them out of the gun sites. You know, uh, too too often methadone is treated like a privilege, uh, you know, some kind of uh, moral uh, hoops have to be jumped through to get there. Um, and abstinence is treated as the end goal. Well, every day that someone takes methadone, they're not taking as much or maybe any um, of the of the other illegal drugs, right? So even if you're getting somebody on methadone and you're still getting a hot piss test back from them, it's still an improvement, right? They're probably yeah. using less and or they're on the road to using less. And that's that's like a harm reduction right there. And there's also that, you know, you're 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 building in that neural circuit of I'm trying. I'm I'm working on it. I'm I'm trying to do something different. I'm building on small successes. We know that that sort of positive reinforcement has real value in modifying behavior and allowing positive behavior change. I'm not making that up. I mean, that, that's, that's how it works. That's how it's done. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that lowering the barriers to those kind of programs too, like pretty much everybody has to go to the pharmacy every day. Pretty yeah. much everyone has to do a piss test every time they, they go into a, a clinic. And, um, you know, these, these things are overused, you know, you, people have to be, uh, letting go with the, the fist, you know, the, the trying to hold all the rules tightly at the top and just let people have some agency in their lives. Like yeah. that is, well, that is a huge driver of substance use disorder is that we have no self-determination. We have no ability to control things in our own life and giving us back that agency, that ability to make decisions and to affect outcomes instead of just being, uh, sort of a current that flows where the various authority figures in our life demand it, um, that will help too. That will help yeah. with the neural circuitry too. Cause you'll think, Oh, I, I, I can, there is room for me to take yeah. some ownership over things. That's right. And, and I think too, is that not just ownership and agency, but partnership. And one of the things that I think is reflective of that, I recently learned that we want to, when we're discussing this, we want to be using the term opioid use disorder substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder. We don't want to be saying things like addict and we don't want to be using those older terms because the, the negative connotation and the pejorative notation with them now is so intense and it's totally counterproductive. We, and, and I noticed that you're using the same term and we did not discuss that in advance. Is there some sense of partnership? Where are the partners coming from? Are the partners the medical field? Are doctors partnering with you? Is there is there a sense of you have some allies in this fight? Yeah, I mean, one of our one of the best examples of that is Dr. Ryan McNeil, who's the science advisor to us on the podcast. He's a real partner in trying to do what we're doing with the podcast. He's he's all in. He's absolutely an ally. And uh, this guy I met uh, five years ago or so when we were experiencing various uh, effects from a policy change and he just heard us talking about it. And he said, well, I can study that right now, like as the change is happening. And he rolled it into a longitudinal study that was going on, asked the questions, got answers back that actually did reflect what we were finding. And we were able to present that to government. And of course, they haven't actually listened. But the fact that he would hear us and uh, be willing to to have his research directed and influenced by our needs uh, is revolutionary, you know, and, and the more we can do that, the better for the most part um, right now, we experience uh, doctors, at least the, the ones that we see as individuals as not as allies, but as obstacles, right? So 
in the best case, you will have a relationship that you've carefully nurtured and tended like a garden because they hold, you know, your, your doctor that prescribes your methadone, they hold your life in their hands. Absolutely. So if they cut you off, if they change the dose, if they, if they make arbitrary measures on you, um, you're fucked. So we, we, uh, at the best case scenario, it's, it's a, it's a, a relationship that you've, you've carefully cultivated. It's not a trust relationship where you can disclose anything because you, you, they have too much power over your life. So you have to very carefully manage that. And I would love for there to be true partnerships where you don't have to be in that situation, but I don't know of any right now. And perhaps there are people, um, listening or there's people on, on, uh, various treatments right now that do have that relationship. And that's, that's great that they found that, uh, possibility, but it's, it's, you know, it's not the norm. It's sad. And it's hard to hear you say that if I'm being completely honest with you, because I think that the vast majority of my hope is at least that the vast majority of physicians who are working with patients with substance use disorder of whatever type opiate, cocaine, alcohol, nicotine, that we should be trying to partner. And if there are elements that make that relationship dynamic difficult for either one, we should, that part of the work in doing this is going to be to address it and fix it. And quite honestly, I think that's one of the things that that crackdown is going to be doing is in this first phase, calling that stuff out. Like you just called that out. I am now aware of it. I get to be mindful of that for the rest of my career. I get to put this podcast out there so that people who are fans of explore the space get to hear it. This is exactly why this podcast explore the space exists. Now we can at least have language around it. We can at least be aware that that power dynamic, which should not exist is in play. And that's a problem. And I, yeah, I appreciate I, that I, candor. I, and I think there's lots of room for, for allies. Yeah. Like we, we do, there is a, a doctor that works on the downtown east side uh, of Vancouver, Dr. Christy Sutherland. And she's in episode two, right? That's, that's right. Yeah. And, and they have, they have become an ally over, over recent years um, by seeing firsthand the impacts of what's going on. And, and they told us, I, I didn't really use this tape, but they told us they found their voice from being sort of like a, a young doctor that, that she described. She was a little timid and, you know, that they got the received view from, uh, whatever government policy to one that was pushing back against that sort of thing. And so I think there are, there's lots of room for, for situations like hers where people can say, look, I'm seeing this patient experience or the experience of their, their methadone or their OAT patients that directly contradicts uh, the policies that I'm seeing from government. And it's my role to sound the alarm on that. I'm, you know, doctors not as dutiful implementers of what they learned in medical school or what the government of the day is, is saying but who are champions for their patients. And that's where you get the trust from, right? So some of her patients are going to be saying, look, abstinence is not on for me. I do not see that in my future. I just want to use a little safer. Or they might have people, she, she has, you know, probably patients that work in the sex trade that want to have to do, turn less tricks in a day. And so that's the patient's goal is not, you know, a year long, 12 steps, and then they're at sobriety or whatever, and clean time. It's, just please reduce the hell of my life in this way. And, and a true partnership means, yeah, we buy into your goals. And, and sure, as a doctor, you're probably always looking for that next step towards the next level of health or the next level of reducing your risk. But the patient is the one that sets that, that pace. And when you use um, the tools you have, your prescription pad or whatever, punitively, 
then then it's like the anti-partnership there. When when doctors elect themselves as a as a cop, uh, then we get into problems. That that listening to you speak about that and 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 that kind of call from a patient to say just please help me reduce the hell of my life. Uh, I have to sit with that one for a minute, and I appreciate you calling it out because. It makes sense, and there's work to be done in that space, and I really appreciate it. My, my hope is that Crackdown Podcast is looked at as a cornerstone work in changing how we looked at something, in changing how we looked at an epidemic, right? There were things that helped drive the way perspectives were changed in the, in the 80s around HIV and AIDS, and they were successful. And they, they did drive, they did drive change. They did move the needle and they were multifaceted and there were all these different approaches. Now in the 21st century with podcasting, with social media, with all of these different tools that we have, my hope is that Crackdown can really, hopefully very quickly be positioned as one of those very, very powerful tools. I, I hope so too. I mean, that's a, that's a big goal. And we, we always sort of uh, aim, aim for the stars and I, I hope we're able to to do that. I, I, and I hope that, I mean, I really hope that the, the, the trajectory of the crisis is something, I mean, this is just horrible to say, but it's, it's something like what happened before with what you were talking about. Like, I hope there is this moment of social acceptance, this moment of where we turn the corner from the drug war, where we turn the corner from locking people up and sort of a, a police and military solutions to things. I hope we get there too. And I would love for crackdown to be part of that. And your listeners could help us do that by subscribing. Yeah. So on, that's the, right. That's, those, this is the part where things. I want you to plug it because I, I think that what you're doing is so important. How do people find crackdown podcast? How do they find you? How do they subscribe? We are, we, our website is crackdownpod.com, and we're on, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, um, all of the platforms, YouTube, uh, everything where you would get a podcast from we're there and you can follow me at garth mullins watch for our patreon that'll be a way to help us too but really it's it's ears that we need the most um the more numbers we get the higher the chance that we can keep doing this and uh keep on and you'll hear that we do really like a documentary radio it's 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 certainly interviews but it's also we take you to the actual places we treat the tape with a great deal of care. We do investigative journalism. So we're looking for doc documents. We're, we're tracking down lobbyists. We're doing all those phone calls. And that all takes time and money for us. So any way you can help by listen or, or uh, you know, hit us up for a few bucks on the Patreon, that would be fantastic. The, the quality of the show is unbelievable. I love it. I'm a huge fan. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about it. I emailed you the day I found out about Crackdown, and I you were very, very gracious in replying very quickly, and I'm really glad this could come together. Gar, thank you so much for taking the time. I look forward to future collaborations with you, and I cannot wait to listen to episode three. Thanks, Mark, and congratulations about passing the 100-episode mark. That's incredible. I can't even imagine <laughs> the hours that that will take us to get there, but I, I like uh, hats off to you. You'll get there, and hopefully you come back on before you hit episode 100, but we will definitely celebrate episode 100 of Crackdown together. Garth, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show 
And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.